Yo, 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 yo. Do you want to know something simple and powerful as fuck? Perhaps the secret of happiness? First, make a list of your goals. Make a list of your visions. Make a list of your dreams. If you don't know how to do that, start by writing down the opposite of what you want. What do you not want? What do you not want in life? Look at that list. And then create the life that you do want around it. And once you're done, remove all actions, all belongings, and all distractions in your life that aren't of absolute value to your goals and your visions and your dreams. Clear the clutter in your home. It may take a while. One step at a time. Clear the clutter in your home. Minimize the bullshit gremlins that flood through your email inbox. Take a hiatus from social media accounts. There are so many things you can do to clear the clutter. You see, it flows like this. When you have fewer distractions, you awaken your awareness. And when you are more aware, you pay attention to the areas of life that matter the most, like forming stronger relationships, authentic relationships, and engaging in higher levels of creativity and passion. And as you form stronger relationships and you engage in creativity and passionate adventures, you're opening new doors that unite you with your clarity and your purpose in your life. And when you live your life with clear, purposeful intent, guess what happens? You'll discover that the pursuit of happiness that you dream of is not only possible, It's absolute. It's right in front of you. It's reaching out. It's the happiness of the pursuit. Hold its hand and be simply in love. I'm Heath Armstrong. This is Never Stop Peaking. It's depressing like a dimple on your butt. If you behave, you'll get a nickel you can spend on stuff. And in time, you'll get a dime if you impress your boss. So you can buy some more stuff just to numb your thoughts. You've been a space-driven higgity hunk of me since birth. Flying through the universe on a rock called Earth. Composed of stardust with an emotional gut. While you letting conformity slam you up the butt. You're not one fucks, two fucks, red fucks, blue fucks. You can play duck hunt and wait around for luck. Or you can rent a big truck and drive your vision. Build a palace to the moon your schmuck friends piss their pants Get up and dance, rocket ship that booty Take a chance for your freedom, miggity milk that booby Cause when the fear attacks and tries to crack what you're thinking Fuck no, you'll never stop peeking Hi-de-ho, ladies and gents, boys and girls No matter who you are no matter what you are doing, if you're taking a big dump if you're eating Dunkaroos, Dunkaroos were amazing, by the way. If you're laying around in the park, if you're commuting to work, if you're creating extensively, if you're writing, whatever you're doing, I'm glad that you're here listening. We're on the same wavelength, and we collided for a reason. I'm sorry my mic sounds like shit. I don't know what it is. My audio interface is like fuzzy or something. Um, The conversation actually sounds okay. 
But for some reason, I cannot get this drilled in right now. But you'll have to deal with it. Because I don't have the time to fix it. Because I'm eating Dunkaroos myself. So on the same topic that I open with, I want to talk about surrendering our stuff and, and rendering enough. When I sold my house and all my belongings, it was easy for people to look at my move and predict, ah, checkmate, he's fucked. Um, never going to get through that. Why would you want to leave all that? That type of mindset. I had five televisions. I had five fish tanks. I had a full bar, four bedrooms, a jacuzzi tub, and another 1,781 items. I counted as I got rid of them. That I had worked, quote unquote, for my entire life. Why would I get rid of this stuff that I earned through my pursuit of the American dream? And then I read a quote and it said, wealthy people are merely janitors of their possessions. And I started thinking about it. I was spending so much time and money and energy just maintaining all of the stuff that I owned and how much of it actually contributed pure value to my life or my goals or my dreams. If I got rid of it all, would I be depriving myself of everything I'd ever worked for? In a way, I was okay with the challenge. I'd massed over $20,000 debt, and I knew that I had no choice but to shift my attention to things that truly mattered and to remove anything else that wasn't contributing value. As I interviewed all of those people around the world, damn it, I screwed up again. Hold on a second. Conversation running in my ear. Same as last episode. Uh, okay, sorry. Um, it, I don't even remember what I was talking about. So I had 20K debt, right? And I, I knew I had no choice but to shift my attention to things that truly mattered. And to remove anything else that wasn't contributing value to what mattered. And as I was interviewing those people all around the world, the creative entrepreneurs, I realized that they were very focused on things that had value in alignment with their core visions and their dreams. Everything that they did, everything that they t took action on, everything that they paid attention to, in some way related to what they were working towards. And it wasn't long before I discovered the magic of simplifying and really, as some people would call it, depriving myself. If you want to look at it negatively, <laughs> I started discovering the magic of simplifying. And the financial freedom that I was working towards was every bit worth of a sacrifice as the discomfort that came along with it. I gave up television. I went outside more. Nature is the purest source of inspiration in my life to date. I gave up drinking in boredom and I started meditating. Meditation opens the channel to the source where all of my ideas and creativity comes from. I gave up sleeping in and I started writing. Writing is the habit that put the sweet ass domination deck and the sweet ass journal in your hands. I gave up gym memberships and started trail running and doing yoga and using resistance bands and cycling. Juggling different types of exercises removes the chore feeling and brings alive a childlike play energy that I always look forward to with exercise. It's fun. 
I gave up impulse purchasing and used the money to pay down debt instead. I saved over 15 grand in one year by completely refocusing where my money was being spent. Everything that I removed from my life was replaced by something that was in alignment with my vision to be happy, to be location independent, and to be debt free. Yes, there was stuff that I parted ways with that I missed, but it only taught me to better utilize the possessions that I did still have. And instead of the process feeling like torture, it felt more freeing than anything I've ever experienced in my life. So I challenge you today, get rid of one thing and write it down in a journal. What was it? How did it feel? And tomorrow, get rid of two things. And the next day, get rid of three things. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's deleting an email. Maybe it's uninstalling an app on your phone. Maybe it's removing a certain toxic friend in your life. Do this for 30 days and see how you feel. And journal about it. When you get to day 30 and you're looking for 30 more things to remove from your life, it becomes a challenge that you'll be very much addicted to because you'll look back on the past 29 days and what you've accomplished and how much it's freed up your energy, your time, your passion, your creativity, and you'll be ready to do it. And I have faith that you'll accomplish it because you're a fucking thug. So we look at simplicity and location independence and happiness There's one guy that I got in mind that reminds me of all three. His name's Ray Blakeney. He's the CEO and founder of Live Lingua, Ravensoft, Twidgicate, lots of different SEO and language learning based businesses. He's been featured in Entrepreneur, Forbes. He's a true thug. Grew up kind of all over the world and in and out of the Peace Corps. He's an SEO wizard. He's very analytical, but one of the most humble, amazing dudes I've ever met. Inspires the fuck out of me every single day and does it in the most remarkable, subtle, silent way. Um, He's not loud, doesn't run his mouth. He gets things done and he makes a big difference in the world. So I'm really excited to have him on the podcast today. So I'll get right into that conversation But don't forget the challenge. Get a journal, write it down, start minimizing, and I'll see you on the other side. For all the show notes, heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast. If you want to enter a giveaway to win a sweet-ass domination deck or a digital pack or a sweet-ass journal, we do them every episode. Go to heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway. You can get entered into this week's giveaway and all of the future giveaways. And if you want to help me out, leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. I'll send two bucks for every review down to the Help Uganda Foundation that I work with. And yeah, love all of you very much, very long time. And I hope that one day we'll be able to roll around in harmony together with our clothes off, singing songs of joy and painting each other's fingernails and drinking Mai Tais, which I found out is not a martial art during this episode, but it's actually just a drink. So let's get right into it. Ta-ta, toots! I have the pleasure to present to you 
know you. So you don't want to talk about mainstream bullshit about well, businesses. That's exactly it. Yeah, I'm like, I I'm told totally you I was recording this whole time now. already. What's that? So what if I told you I was recording this whole time already? Let's do it. I don't care. <laughs> All right, man. I'm not famous enough that I'm going to get into, you know, I'm not like Elon Musk <laughs> that's going to get in trouble if I'm smoking pot on a podcast. I'm like, nobody will care. I already hit the CBD pan and you called me out exactly. for that. So. Um, turn your video off just because this internet's a little shaky and okay. we'll for sure. You got my nice photo anyway. I can see this brilliant photo of you, Ray. You you look like you could be a pilot. You look like you could be a lawyer. You exactly. Look like you could be the world's greatest dad, maybe a uh, stand-up comedian on a sitcom <laughs> like Fresh Prince or elsewhere. Everybody loves Raymond. A stand-in for Carlton probably. Good. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I, that was my true calling. I missed it. <laughs> I'm going to use this picture for the show notes so everybody can see what I'm talking about. <laughs> Go for it. So, you can even draw like a, you know, <laughs> demon horns on it or something like that. Yeah. Well, to, to, in, in all honesty, Ray, and not to regurgitate things that you do, but and, and I don't want to start this out by tooting, tooting your, your horn, although you do have a horn that probably really should be tooted. In, in a way, uh, it deserves to be tooted, and I hope that doesn't sound too perverted. Even though I meant it in slightly perverted way, you're you're a wizard, but in the most humble way. There's really not a day that goes by where you don't inspire me. Everything that you do, I'm proud to have you as as a friend. I'm proud to have you as a a peer in a mastermind group, and hopefully a future member of my Camboy team. If you're up for that, um, what what is that? <laughs> <laughs> like I don't even know what that means. I'm just kidding, man. Uh, <laughs> It's it's the whole the whole essence of the the way I'm reading that Sex Till Dawn book and it's giving me all these crazy facts about the, <laughs> the amount of people and just how the pornography industry owns like all of the major networks and sports teams they make it makes more money than all of them combined and it's insane to me so I reference the Camboys because Camboys are making some good money apparently or oh, whoever wow. runs the site is. <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 that's one where all the like the you pay for video chat per hour or some weird thing like that, right? Well, what they do is they so like Paul Lamb, he says he's not a camboy, but I know he is. Paul, <laughs> I can believe that. I can believe that. <laughs> well, you know, he'll sit there and take his pants off or do whatever he does, and then other people get on there, whether it be uh, a cougar or a dude or some young fine girl who's got a crush on him, and they. He's, they got those little – dude, they have these ridiculous – they're like vibrators, but they're Bluetooth. And then when the person tips, it makes it go off. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, it's genius because it, like, makes the Niche person – it makes Yeah, it makes the person who's, like, I guess never never goes out on, like, dates or whatever feel feel good that they're, they're causing this other, you know, super, this human on the other side of the world to feel something. Whether it be real button. or not. Yeah, but. like the cyborg sex thing. It, it's it's crazy to see the progression from when we were like little. I remember when I was like eight years old and it was just like chat rooms and you just get on there and type ASL, which meant like age sex location. And then everybody would just be like, oh, 16 male Tennessee. Wow, you were in those? I'm like, I would not have known that. Dude. I mean, I knew that. Existed, but yeah, I've never actually been in one. Well, any of the chat rooms popped up. Like all we had was AOL dial-up, and I remember, like, I mean, I was a kid, so 
naturally, if you look at kids, you give them a cell phone or a computer, it's insane how fast they pick it up. I mean, even when I was in Africa working in Uganda, like giving, showing the kids the math lab for the first time, I was like, okay, here's how you create a username and log in. Immediately, the, the six kids that watched me do it did it without a question, just did it. Like had never even used a computer before, typed it out, everything. I was like, wow, that's insane. So thinking about myself as a kid, like those big ass computer, like, you know, they probably cost my parents a fortune that came to my house and I get on there with the dial up and yeah, the only thing you could get to was like pictures and emails and, and like these chat rooms. That was the thing. It was chat rooms. And I didn't just think about the, the non-security factor. Then it was just a bunch of creeps in there. Like, oh, like these 11 year old kids, eight year old kids, 13 year old kids, everybody's lying about their age and their location. Except <laughs> they were the probably all 11 year old kids pretending <laughs> <Yeah>. to be. <laughs> exactly. But then you have the random creep that's in there. And, and then they yeah. started doing the, I mean, it got pretty bad, I think, in 10 years later. They started doing all those sting operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then internet security picked up pretty well. And I think people became more aware of the danger of having their kids in places like that without knowing about it. So it's good where it's progressed, but it, yeah, it was creepy then, and it's obviously now into a period where you can tip like five five coins, and Paul's nipples will shake when he has the the vibrator attached to him with the nipple clip. You never know. <laughs> Have you ever told Paul the, Paul your theory? <laughs> Poor kid, I think he'd, he'd die blushing. I don't need to tell him because he already knows. This isn't <laughs> this isn't a conspiracy. This is fact. And I have a pretty strong intuition, Ray, and I, I can pick up on these things about people. Well, he seems to live in a very nice house. He says it's his parents' house, but that just might be covered <laughs> something else. Yeah, but, but he's in the basement. Let's not forget that. There's no telling <laughs> what goes on in the basement. Well, that's his office, right? I mean, you know. I mean, office, Camboy Studio. Exactly. All it well, that- takes is a quick little curtain pull, and we're good. Exactly. Exactly. Pulls, pulls back the curtains. <laughs> Anyway, if you think about back then, though, on that same subject, you've you've kind of evolved into this freak show SEO maniac. And as a developer, you didn't have a traditional path, really. You're in the Peace Corps. I think your family was you kind of grew up in the Peace Corps. Um, and you were a developer, and you made that transition, I guess, into into what you do today with the language learning. Uh, websites, Live Lingua. I think what's your company? Ravensoft was the owner of all this, and Twidgicate, mm-hmm. and things like that. You, you, you're a partner with your wife. That came later on. Did you meet her in the Peace Corps? Yeah, she was actually my teacher. Um, and it didn't ah, actually, so hot for teacher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and actually, you know, my mom was my dad's teacher in the Peace Corps too, so it was kind of history repeating itself on that end. What was she teaching um, you? Language? Spanish. Spanish, cool. She was my Spanish teacher. And that's actually how all the businesses, I wasn't an entrepreneur at all before I met her. Um, I always wanted to be one, right? But I didn't, never had, and it sounds coarse, kind of a product to sell. It, you know, I enjoy the, I love the entrepreneurship part of things, right? I could sell donkeys online if it was good business. I mean, it's not that. <laughs> that we matters. could drop ship them. Yeah, exactly. Whatever you want. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, my skill set wasn't a product. I mean, I could have been a consultant, but that's it. I like working with other people 
who do have the products and making that successful. And my wife had always wanted to start a language school, brick and mortar, and then we moved online. And she's the one who had the skill set to build the product, which was, you know, language education. So I just threw all the kind of peripherals around her. Right. Well, you've been slammed around like a sexy savage. You've <laughs> really been forced to engage with languages all over the world. And your wife is your boss. She owns you. She probably loves your sly, creative, humbling attitude, but I think she probably hates the copious amount of massacres that you perform in your undies. And that, I, I think she would definitely back you up with that. When you meet her in a month, she will probably agree. Ray! Exactly. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But how, I'm, I'm wondering, how is it to work with the same person that you live with? And I, I've done this myself, and managing that, how, from like an authentic relationship standpoint, how do you guys make that work so well? It took a lot of work and you know, one of the, how would I put it? And I've said this since the beginning. If you're going to start a business with your wife, be, be ready for two possible outcomes, having a really strong relationship or divorce. There is no middle ground. There is nothing that we're, you know, our relationship stayed the same. It didn't affect us. Uh, it's one of those two extremes. And I don't know what the statistics are. Maybe it's more for one side than the other. Um, there are a few things that I learned along the way when we were doing that that were really useful and I credit my wife for the biggest one. She's Latina, so she shows her emotions a lot more. Yeah. Instead of, you know, what in the U.S. we kind of hold it in. And so kind of things, small things become big over a long period of time. She would explode about its small things when we were starting, you know, when we were newlywed. And at first it annoyed me, but then I realized it's actually for the best because, you know, she explodes at a small thing, we get over it and we move on instead of that small thing becoming bigger. She taught me how to argue. Um, Ooh. And I think that was probably one of the most useful skills that we had is that, you know, if something was bothering us, we would say it and we might fight about it in the moment, but we'd be fine. You know, we would work through it pretty quickly. I mean, you know, we'd be argue maybe an hour, but never more than like being mad for like a few hours. And then we'd kind of get over it. We'd move on. I know in past relationships, you know, little things bother you and you, you let it kind of just, you know, boil inside you for months. And when it explodes, it becomes this huge, huge thing. So that helped a lot. The second thing was that we made a very clear division in our work responsibilities, not between work and, you know, the whole work-life balance. I don't believe it exists, um, but I can get to that later. The thing is we made a clear, clear divisions in the job where this is my, you know, this is where my job starts and this is where your job starts. And, you know, I don't touch that area. I, it worked out well that our skill sets are like totally different. Um, she's a teacher. I am a crappy teacher. Uh, and she has no interest in the business and the marketing. So I take care of that. And that helps a lot as well. So we're not stepping on each other's foot. It took us a little, little while to find the lines. I'd say the first 12 months of marriage, we argued a lot, but then ever since we, I'm not going to say we never argue, um, but we don't argue very often and it doesn't come up, you know, in our daily life, but we don't have really have a work-life balance in the traditional sense. We work at home. We live at home. Uh, you know, we spend all, all our time with each other, but we do trips separate. I'm going to come and hang out with you and you, the others up in Denver by myself, you know. Ah, that's coming up. That's like next week, yeah, man. Exactly. And, but my wife is like going to, she's not sitting at home saying, Oh, poor husband. She's going to the beach with her sister and mom. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for a girl's week trip to Cancun. So yeah. And it's fine. We do this like once or twice a year where we kind of just go on our own trips. Uh, and we do like three months where we travel together, but one or once or twice a year, there are trips that she does without me and vice versa. And I think it's really healthy for the relationship. Yeah. I think, I think it really is about authenticity there, man. It's, you can't, the arguing is much better 
because you get it out and you're being authentic with each other and what you're thinking and feeling. Uh, it's a lot about listening, being able mm -hmm. to listen and not put your own perspective or projection in the way like it's better than the other person. Um, and I, th I think that it's if you're in that position where you're holding it in and you're not talking about it for a year and it all mm -hmm. builds up and blows up, that's when things happen like a divorce when really that probably could have been worked out previously just by talking it out and respecting and listening to each other. So I think that's pretty fantastic the way that you're, you're managing that. Uh, there's, there's more and more entrepreneurial couples that are popping up that you see and it's inspiring. Cause I think before traditionally it was one of the first people you meet maybe in college, right in high school, you get married to, you have kids and you may not be compatible at all because people change like crazy, but it is cool with the internet now. And I mean, I know you're a gigantic Tinder guy yourself. Um, every day, all day, every day. <laughs> you can meet I'm people. I'm right now while I'm talking to you. I mean, you know. Swiping. <laughs> you can meet people that that maybe would be better off down, you know, waiting and, and, and just getting into your 20s and figuring out who you are and then meeting somebody else who has figured out who they are. Um, what what age were you 100%. when you guys met? How old were you when you met her? I was 28, um, yeah. but actually what you what you just described is like my exact story. I had a long-term girlfriend going two, maybe three years in college, and the main reason that it didn't work out, and it took me a few months to get over that, but it, it, it didn't work out was because she wanted to get married, and she came from a small town in Ohio where most of her friends got married in high school, right? So she had the whole I'm almost 21 and not married thing. I'm from I Ohio. Was a year, was that? <laughs> I said I grew up in Ohio. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, you know, she was from uh, somewhere near Akron. And I remember, you know, and I was thinking, I was about a year and a half younger than she was, actually. And I'm like, I won't, if we get married in college, I won't be able to drink at my own wedding. I mean, that it was like <laughs> legally drink alcohol at my own wedding. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, because you're a I'm really now. glad I didn't do, you know, I didn't get married then because I'm in my, well, I'm getting into my late 30s now, let's say. And I didn't really know who I was until I would say about 34, 35. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty much, I started figuring it out around 30, but if you, you know, who I was, being comfortable who I was, was until my mid thirties. I think um, it was about 30 for me. 28's when yeah. I started the transition, but 30 is really That's when exactly I, when I started my transition as well. 28's when I joined the Peace Corps. Cause I'm like, this path I'm on is not really who I want to be. Um, but I wasn't quite sure who I wanted to be. Right. But I knew at that point, it's like, okay, there's something here. Right. Um, and it was, yeah, it took, it took years to find myself to kind of do what I'm doing, what I love to do right now. Um, what's your best memory of the Peace Corps? Well, okay. I'm being recorded. So meeting my wife, but no, actually that probably <laughs> was my, that probably was my best memory of the Peace Corps, but you don't have any honestly, like story that stands out to you. In something interesting. Where were you? Where were you actually stationed? I was in southern Mexico in a state called Chiapas, in a city called San Cristobal de las Casas, which is this beautiful city of about 150,000 up in the mountains. It's kind of pretty well known for some for backpacking tourists because it's a pine forest. It's surrounded by ruins. You're surrounded by mountains. Um, beautiful, beautiful place. But this, it has a very vibrant indigenous community. So you kind of go out and you see indigenous people just walking the street. Um, I would go to the market and I had, I could barely get through without ducking and I'm not, you know, barely almost, you know, just under six feet tall. Heath, you would have to crawl 
to walk through their market. Because, I mean, the, the tarps are just so low. Because the average indigenous person is like five feet tall. And that's what the tarps are made for. So every time I got there, I kind of dock and you have to dodge chickens because people are carrying live chickens um, all up and down the market. Loved the experience that was out there. I wouldn't say it was my favorite experience, but the most interesting experience I had out there was being accused in uh, the national paper of being a CIA spy. Ooh. So that was kind of, yeah. So How crazy, man. You know, when Jared was in, Jared and Gaza was on the show earlier, when he was in Africa, he had all sorts of trouble with that kind of thing, too, where they tried to blackmail him and do some things. So on the paper, huh? Wow. It was this was it was a newspaper called La Jornada, which is one of the three biggest newspapers in Mexico. They had an article about me and the two others. They didn't call me by name, but they, the, me and the two other people at the center I was with, uh, center I was at, that we were accused of being planted to steal the information. Um, because these were science centers researching indigenous communities, but we were there to support them, me on the IT side. Um, the ironic part of it, it was a government organization, and by law they have to publish everything because it's public domain. You know, it's a government-sponsored thing. So for anybody who thought about it, they were accusing us of stealing information that was going to be made public anyway. So it didn't really make much sense, but it was a good political football. So that was probably the most interesting experience I had there. I remember we were trying to separate ourselves from, like, the State Department and all that uh, because the Peace Corps tries to keep itself separate. And the U.S. ambassador decided to visit San Cristobal that week and wanted wanted to meet with us. So I remember specifically walking through a a crowd of protesters to get into our restaurant, you know, saying Yankees go home and all that kind of stuff. Uh, big news crews outside, everything. Luckily, due to being a Filipino American, I actually looked Mexican, so nobody even had an inkling that I was part of the U.S. crowd that was going in there. So I was able to go through, but my other Peace Corps volunteers who do look American, apparently they got heckled on the way in. Well, so the, the let's cut to it, though. You, you clearly were the spy. I obviously, I've been told by many friends that I should be, because, you know, how many other Filipino Americans who look Latino, who could speak Middle Eastern languages are there in the world? <laughs> Isn't your dad from South Africa? Is it, he grew up in Africa. He grew up in Rhodesia, um, huh. Zimbabwe right yeah, now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My grandfather, and here's an interesting thing, actually was a CIA spy in Rhodesia. So that actually, you know, he worked for the CIA while he was there. He was the... He was passing information to help people who were being oppressed by the government. See, now the truth comes out. Exactly. He, he published it in a book a few years ago, so I'm pretty sure I'm not the first one revealing that. Yeah. Well, it sounds pretty fascinating. I mean, you 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 figured out a way to put your development skills, and you met the right person at the right time, which I was thinking about yesterday. It's just funny how the universe kind of just – you meet – the right people right when you need it it's mm -hmm. it, you never expect it but as long as you stay in alignment with what your vision is and you know who yourself is and, you, and you're transparent about it it's it's like they get trickled in and you have to be aware that they're there but when you can actually meet somebody and maybe they turn into your wife maybe they turn into a friend or you know a buddy that you do your camboy shows with or whatever it, it can really turn into magical stuff and you having your wife and with all of the success that you've had, I mean, you've gotten a lot of publicity for your business. You're doing, you're, you're, you're directly affecting thousands of people around the world, teaching kids language, right? You have teachers that are being employed to teach language. How many, how many teachers do you have now with Live Lingua? We're going up on 200, um, which yeah. for like an online school, like if you look at our competitors, they're like, well, we have 10,000 tutors. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not that. 
you know, that's not what we do. We're kind of more of a boutique language school where you come to us. We will help you, you know, find your perfect teacher. We will give you support on our, with our academic staff to learn the languages. We are not a tutor directory like our comp- competition where anybody, I can go there and put English, you know, sign up to teach English. I have no business teaching anybody English. I mean, I can barely speak myself. Um, so we're a very different business model, but we have about 200 teachers, all of whom have been thoroughly vetted, college degrees, many masters, PhDs, minimum two years of experience, average of five years of experience. Um, How so many we're countries kind of a, are you are these um, teachers and children in? Well, the students we have, I, I actually have that number is 143. The teachers, I actually haven't never run a report on exactly how many countries our teachers are from, so I don't really 143 know. different countries for the students. We've had students from 143 countries. Wow, you're since getting we up there, man. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I know. 50 I know. short. How do you get the last 50? We got to figure this uh, yeah, out. Yeah, some of those countries are going to be a little bit harder since you know they are <laughs> way under the poverty line. Yeah. Um, they couldn't. Have, Unfortunately, being most people in those countries could not afford it. But, of course, we do have something for them as well, where we have that our free language resources with over 130 languages worth of free audios, ebooks, all that on our website for... I think it's interesting how you got those resources started. I, I think a, a year ago or so you were telling me that you you literally went to free government resources that weren't indexed and started indexing them online. Is, is my remembering that correctly? Yeah, that's about right. What happens is, is these are, since these are made by the government, they're public domain. Um, but the government doesn't actually always go out there and share it or make it very readily accessible to people. Right. So through a combination of reaching out to some of my contacts, you know, my quote unquote CIA contacts, um, <laughs> primarily in the Peace Corps and some other places and, and around the internet. What we did was we went out and collected all this information that was available, audios, videos, all that public domain, reached out to Peace Corps volunteers who had created courses and, you know, they had no place to host them. And we compiled them all into one place called the Live Lingua Project. So you can look that up on Google. Type in the Live Lingua Project and we have everything from common language to Spanish, English, like Arabic. We have 54 courses, thousands of audios, um, all the different dialects. 100% free. I mean, we don't even ask you to give you your email, right? You just kind of come in, pick your language, and have fun. Uh, and two of these really random ones, like Maasai and, you know, uh, Ikbatan, which is apparently a Filipino language, which I'm Filipino. I'd never heard of it. I asked my mom who taught languages. She had never heard of it. Apparently, it's this random island in the middle of the Philippines with, like, 5,000 people. And at some point, there was a Peace Corps volunteer there who made a course on how to speak that language. There are only 5,000 people in the world who speak it, and we're the only place wow. you can find it. How cool. Yeah, and we have a bunch of African languages that are similar, like 20,000, 30,000 people speak it. Yeah, we have it there. So part of our goal is also to keep languages from getting lost, right? Because a lot of these languages are dying, um, and we'll have like some of the only written records kind of shared. They, about them. they are dying. It was kind of sad when I was in Jinja, and the, the kids – they're forced to speak English at the schools because it's really the, the, the language that's you know, the influence is there for it. It's, it's the hub, but they all have these tribal languages that they could speak as well. And, and it's sad to think that they're probably the last generation that's going to be speaking those languages from the education point of view, um, because they don't let them speak it. And they really, the guy next to them or the girl next to them, might speak a different tribal language because you have Sudan refugees, you have the Kenyan refugees. They, they all come into this area and then they they kind of get pushed into that side of Jinja, which is the slums. It's a place called Masese. But every one of those kids, like they, I would ask them what their tribal language was and it was always something different. And it was just fascinating to me how many languages are still out there. 
Yeah, they say there's about 7,000 languages in the world, but I think 30 or 40% of them are endangered. I mean, pretty much can be lost in one or two generations. Wow. Yeah. So even the one, our work with, you know, we have 130 or so out there, that's not even a drop in the bucket. Yeah. What do you think your all's biggest accomplishment is with Live Lingua? Being, oh, that's easy. Uh, being able to sponsor children's education around the world. We work with three organizations, Save the Children USA, um, EEESMA, which in Spanish is Escuela de Educación Especial San Miguel, which is a school for the deaf in Mexico where we sponsor some children there. And the final one is the CHS, which is a Boston organization, um, where we got a VN actually from my father's involved with them and our business is based in Boston. So we went to something with local community and they help with grants to young entrepreneurs in the education field to try to, um, better educate. Of course their lives. These are generally people from minority communities in the Boston area. So that's probably my proudest accomplishments, getting to a level where we are able to support those kind of organizations. And that kind of microfinancing um, idea, we've talked about it before, but just being able to give an opportunity to somebody that wouldn't otherwise not have it. I mean, I know you have this sort of vision or dream to be able to teach kids how, you know, specific skill sets and then let them go into a business on their own where you support it and then let them run with it. And it's the micro, they did a little bit of that with the computer lab that I was with in Jinja as well. Um, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, this is our long-term dream. Um, you know, eventually what we'd like to do is build up our company a certain level and maybe either have hire people to run them permanently or if somebody comes in, maybe to sell them. Um, but what the skill set I have, as I mentioned, this is what I love to do is, you know, to build businesses. I've also learned that if you have the right knowledge, you know, basic computer skills and basic online marketing skills, it's not hard to build an online business that makes 500 to $1,000 a month with two years of hard work. You could build an online business with 500 to $1,000 a month. Now, to most people in the world, that sounds ridiculous. Why would you work? You know, in the U.S., you can make more working at McDonald's. But I know from firsthand experience that, you know, my cousin in the Philippines is an engineer working for Texas Instruments. He makes $500 a month. So you can take people out of poverty and make them middle upper middle to upper class in their in different countries by teaching these, these skill sets. That's what I would like to do. I'd like to kind of create an organization which teaches people to use kind of to use the internet to either sell their services or their products or create new services that we haven't even imagined yet um, for their local society and for you know, the international society and make a living and take themselves and their family out of poverty. That's kind of my long-term goal. Again, I have the vision. I'm not, I'm an, I'm an awful teacher, but luckily I'm married to a great teacher. So she would kind of come up with the curriculum for that. Um, but I have the kind of the skill sets to teach them along the way. It's happening on small scales already too. And I, I think it's, it's fascinating to, to have the idea that that can be something that happens in these communities where there's nothing right now. I mean, that one computer lab is, is the nicest one out of all the government schools in Jinja. And those kids, you know, if they, the, the ones that come through that do get skill sets that are smart enough, they, they leave, right? They go to Kenya, they go somewhere else that has higher technology and nothing ever stays in the community. And I think it's really important. The vision that you have is very important because it allows them to be able to bring something like that back into their community and let that community grow, let the economy grow, provide more jobs. Um, 
because otherwise it just stays the same as it is, man. And it's it's very mm-hmm. it's a very tough situation. There's not a lot of hope, and the kids are smart. They can do it. They can. There's developers there, man. And I'm not a developer. That stuff makes my head explode. I've tried it, and I and I've watched these kids, and I'm like, they're doing architecture programs. They're doing CAD. They're they're programming different pieces back on, and it's like. You know, they started with a computer at age 12 and can barely speak English or any other language. It doesn't matter because programming is a language of its own. And they click in, they dial in, they get it. And there's so much that can be built on top of that, especially with languages or, or microfinancing or wh- whatever it may be. You got it. You you know, you with your trip to Africa, you've seen it that what we consider poverty in the West, United States and Europe, is not really poverty. I mean, you know, you can go to the poorest place in West Virginia and then you compare it to the refugee camp you were in in Jinja. Yeah. There's no comparison, right? I mean, it's I just a, a lot of time in West Virginia, too. <laughs> well, there you go. So you know exactly what, you know. I just remember when I was doing whitewater rafting, you know, through parts of West Virginia, New River Gully, all the rest of it, you know, we would see some of these, what, quote-unquote, poor houses um, along the, you know, along the side of the river. I think any but any of the refugees in your camp in Jinja would be happy to have that house. I mean, you know, they'd consider it a mansion. So. Yeah, dude, Bo- uh, um, Boone, West Virginia. Do you remember that? I don't know if you ever saw it. There was a documentary. <laughs> it's called Deliverance. The Dancing Outlaw. Not Deliverance, <laughs> but geez. It's called The Dancing Outlaw. It was from like 1991, 92 maybe. This guy was just like this ridiculous – tap dancer he's terrible though not a good not a good tap dancer but he got famous because he was so ridiculous and the whole johnny knoxville they had picked up the story later and and brought it into like a bigger production that actually hit theaters at some point i think it was called like the wonderful whites of west virginia it wasn't as good but the original ones the dancing outlaw it was just like that's as poverty as it gets i mean these people are just shooting each other and at their trailers and like there's no education it's it, and that's exactly how it is because I've been out there and I spent six years driving around those areas working in the construction industry and working with those types of people. But even that, man, even at those lower levels, it, it is nothing compared to like the when you're standing in the middle of the refugee village and it's literally five by five clay or mud huts and you have a family of like five that are sleeping in there. The yeah, fathers are nowhere to be found. Yeah, yeah in sewage piles of trash because there's no trash systems people don't think about there's no running water there's trash piles and the babies are just like crawling around in it eating stuff and they you know they poop right there in the the yard like right in front of the huts and then they have to clean it up and throw it in the trash pile but you know what they are some of the happiest people i've ever met or talked to because there's nothing that is poisoning them into thinking there's something better so they're so thankful for everything that they do have because they have nothing it's a very fascinating thing because when you come back to our country, everybody's so – we're always so focused on negative. Like what's going on with the politics? What's on Fox News and CNN? What's going on with this asshole who's driving on the road and flipping people off? Like you only focus on things that are bad because everything around us is so good. And it's crazy to think how the mind works in that way when we're not aware. You go to a place where they have nothing and everything around you would be potentially looked at as terrible or bad by us. They're like, this is amazing. Like we mm-hmm. we're alive, right? We're we have shelter. There's there's an eggplant that we can eat tonight, um, and they look so clean. They wear these dresses that are beautiful, and you think like, man, simplicity really is happiness. It's it's getting away from all of these things that poison um, us really 
personally influence us from outside areas that necessarily aren't in alignment with our values and and being able to find out who we are in in the simplest form and i think with my life just shedding everything that i used to be consumed with and focusing down on things that only mean valuable stuff to me has helped a lot but nothing changed me like seeing that out there and the potential of taking those kids that have nothing and putting them in front of a computer they're going to look at that computer much different than a kid here looks at a computer, right? Like kid here that grabs a cell phone and like throws it down and screams because he wants chocolate or something out there. I mean, I, I think the potential is they get on one of those things and they see the world, right? They, they see an opportunity to change everything and cause it's all they have in front of them. And, and I'm, I'm excited that there's companies like you doing this and, and working towards that. And, and, and there's companies like help Uganda that I was out, kind of volunteering with that are taking initiative to make changes in this area. But I, I do think it's important, really important for our future. It is. I mean, you know, for all we know, the next Einstein who's going to discover, I don't know, space travel is was sitting in that camp in, you know, Jinja that you were at. But we'll never really know it. Possible. He's never going to have access to the education in order to be able to kind of build up his skill set. And, Not you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and there's any refugee camp, specifically the ones that save the children we were sponsoring. Um, they're, you know, Syrian refugees in Egypt is one of the camps that we're, we're specifically sending them, you know, donations to. For all we know, you know, the next, the guy who cures cancer is sitting, or the kid who's going to cure cancer is sitting in that camp right now. Yeah, and it's sad because when you talk to them, they're like, well, why, why get more educated? Because the government here will just take what you have from you. If you're too smart, they just exile you or they take your home and they take everything away from you. Why, why bother? And it's heartbreaking to hear them say that. And that's why it's got to come from a big change in, in the government. It's got to come from us. You really have to work with, I mean, we went into the mayor's office. It was hilarious because you have to work with them, right? You have to give them credit or they can shut the school down. I mean, there's a brilliant school in Kenya that was testing out of the, out of the wazoo. These kids were testing out of the country with how smart they were. And they went in and shut them down. Um, cause they're afraid that these kids are going to be smarter than the government and it's going to, you know, it, it's a ridiculous thing. They shut them down. They pinned that they were being taught, you know, homosexuality or something on them. And, you know, cause out there they'll kill you for that kind of thing. And we're, we're in the, we go to the mayor's office in there and it's sitting there and like, he's, we, they send us into this room. He's doing a press conference <laughs> and he's, He's like got all these cameras and microphones in his face and he's talking about all this stuff that he's going to do. And then immediately when it's over, you know, I'm this tall, lanky ass white dude with blonde hair down to my shoulders. The entire crew, they just walk over to me and they all put like the mayor puts his arm around me. They just take like 100 photos and then leave. I'm like, well, what are they going to use that for? (laughs) You know, what what are they going to put in the newspaper saying that he did now? What kind of deal that he made? You know, it's just ridiculous. Uh Yeah, successful businessman in the U.S. meets with our mayor. To yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, they were guys taking selfies with me and see you on TV and stuff like that. It's just, it's just nuts. Um, yeah, the beauty of travel. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it does come step by step, right? Little by little, you you get education in there, you get technology in there, and and you watch them them learn and, and you try to work with the government to help them take some credit. And eventually you're going to get somebody in there who really does care, wants to see their community thrive, isn't going to take the money to protect just themselves while everybody else suffers, which is a pretty big model that happens around the world. And I mean, there's a kid that 
that I, I had a great friendship with when I was out there. He, he was, he looked like Dave Chappelle, to be honest, like a mini Dave Chappelle. He's funny too. And, you know, he'd only been on computers for like a year or two and we got, the internet was up and running and stuff in that lab. And I'm telling you, man, he has tried contacting me through, you know, I write him letters and we try to keep it as, he even listens to this. He's listened to these damn episodes. He's probably going to listen to this. <laughs> if you're out there, Edreen, what's up? He, he's figured out a way to do all this stuff. It shows how smart he is. Um, he, he has added, he, he's made a LinkedIn profile. He has made Facebook profiles. He has sent emails to me and my assistants. He is, it's, it's incredible. Um, seeing that, you know, we look at, a lot of us want to look at that and think that, oh, there's, there's nothing good that can come out of those, those areas. It's such a bad mindset, man. They, they are smarter than most of us. It's, it's the opportunity they deserve is more than most of us. And I just, uh, I'm passionate about it, obviously. But I, I just wanted to say thanks for, for having that vision and working towards it because you're, you're changing the world on a big scale by educating these kids with language. And uh, it's fascinating and it's inspiring. Well, thanks. No, it's, it means a lot to my wife and I as well. So, I mean, that we're doing this. It's, how do I put it? I, making money is important. I'm not going to say it's not simply because we need money to live. Unfortunately, it's how our society works. Well, money makes um, you more who you are, right? And if you're doing well, that, well, that's like exactly that, it. And I, I, that, that I would definitely believe. Um, yeah. But there's also a limit to, you know, once you're, what's it, Maslow's Law, right? Once you get the basics, you know, covered, hopefully most people have, and I believe most people are good, um, most people will have goals past just a Ferrari and, uh, you know, gold-plated something or another. <laughs> True. True that, man. Well, what your company's gotten some publicity. Um, when was the most what was the most exciting thing that happened for you all? Oh yeah, well that was definitely uh, winning Entrepreneurs Magazine as one of the best small businesses in the United States. That was quite a surprise when, when when that happened, and that actually led to a few other things. Us appearing, you know, being mentioned in Forbes and Boston Globe and a bunch of other magazines there. Yeah, the surprising thing is, of course, we are a hundred percent virtual company, so it's you know we have no offices. Um, I like to say, and it's true, it's, you know, when you're paying for lessons with us, you're not paying for a fancy office. You know, you're not, you're not paying our rent, which is what, you know, in a lot of cases you are, we'd have no investors. So when you're paying for lessons with us, you're not paying back into, you know, you're not paying back our investors. You're not paying for our rent. Um, you're just paying for the classes that you have. And we were very proud to be able to kind of have this kind of business model, the kind of location independent one, which is still, I think, looked down upon. Yeah, no, um, it's crazy. I mean, yeah, everybody makes that's that I get after, right? If you're, yeah. All of our friends were into that, and it's beautiful because anybody who works with you or wants to learn or contribute or gain something out of your company value-wise, like you can do it from anywhere in the world. Why is it all oh, down upon? My marketing guys worked for me from Bali for three months. My customer support person yeah. took his family back to the UK for a year. Um, he's from there, but you know he lived in Mexico most of the time. He's back in Mexico now, but he wanted his kids to experience growing up on a farm in the UK, which is where he grew up. So they went back there for a year. They went to, you know, the school, public school there. Their English became perfect. And then now they moved back here. They worked for us the entire time. That, you know, it'd be great if everybody in the world had that flexibility. Imagine it being 7 a.m. in New York City and there being no traffic on the streets because nobody has to really get to work. <laughs> uh, you know, it would it's change. It's fantastic, society. man. Portland is actually a town where I, I run into many people and I'm like, I don't ask the question, like, what do you do? But there are a lot of remote people here, man, that work on their own time with coffee shops, and it's it's mm -hmm. becoming more of a thing with our generation. But in specific city, I, I would imagine Austin's similar. 
Um, it's getting better. Like there's, they're doing this satellite stuff now where you work a little bit from the office and you work from home some. And I think people are seeing the benefit of not having that gigantic expense where you have to drag people to one place with traffic at the same time every day. And the productivity levels cannot be near as high as people that work on their own hours on their own time because you get shit done, man. You know, you well, want- the thing is I think you do need a certain kind of personality type to be able to get shit done on, by yourself, kind of being self-motivated. Yeah. I know some people that aren't. I mean, you know, if you put them at home, they would literally play computer games all day, uh, which Campbell. sounds like a great day to me. But luckily, um, I have the discipline at least. I've somehow developed some discipline and focus, so I, you know, I have times for doing that. But there's some people who just are not able to do that. Right. Well, after switch, switching back to what we were talking about a second ago, how do you manage the feeling after you reach one of those great um, summits? Like, you know, you get – you get into Forbes and entrepreneur, the mentions and things like that, and it feels really good. And there's always that explosion of excitement, uh, tears of joy maybe. And I don't even know if you remember the last time you cried tears of joy, but I think about that sometimes. And I'm like, that's that's an important thing. Reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's that, that silence, like after the peak, and it's like, what's next, right? And a lot of this, it comes to sometimes for me, it, it can feel like depression or confusion or the, the – what's next what i do next question but and the reason this podcast is called never stop peaking because i want to work personally with personal habits towards Mm -hmm. how do you go how do you go to the next one right how do you how do you reflect drop back down a little bit and then reassess and then decide that you're going for that next peak what's what's that process like for you when you start uh, that trek towards the sun sure for me it's actually there's, there's two things that are kind of the key first is to define what the peak is for you uh, and the peak is, you know, what we've achieved, you know, being an entrepreneur and in Forbes, those were steps along the journey. So I never looked at them. I'm at this peak and now I have to look for another one. Right. Um, I it's just, a, you know, a nice a flag or a rest stop on the way. You know, maybe you're climbing up Everest and you found a nice five star hotel for a night. That's kind of what it was. Right. Ah, we slept in a bed. We were good. Now we got to continue the climb. Um, so the two things that have kind of are really important to me in a kind of general term is one, figure out why you're doing this. Uh, for me, it's, it's a lot about legacy. I'd like to leave something in the world. Unfortunately for medical reasons, you know, like the traditional path has been close to us, you know, having kids, we tried to have an adoption, go through adoption. It fell through. Um, so oh. my wife and I decided to move on. And so we want to le- make a mark, a positive mark on the world. So that drives us. That's kind of what, what all of this is for. Um, and then the second thing is focus. Don't lose sight of the peak, whatever that is for you. Um, and just take one step, you know, put one foot in front of the other and keep going. One of the things I say as I give talks about entrepreneurship is how you define failure. Failure is not when you, something doesn't work. It's when you stop trying, right? Failure on using your peak analogy is not when I slip and fell and I scrape my knee on the way up the mountain or broke my leg, let's say something worse. It's not when I broke my leg along the top of the mountain. It's me deciding I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to continue my climb. That's failure. So, you know, you'll be hit road bumps, awful ones along your life. Um, I don't think anybody has that straight line to the top, but failure is only when you quit. Keep focused, keep your vision in there. It has to be something that means something to you, and there's no wrong answer to it, right? If you want to get make $100 million because you want to be rich, that's fine. Uh, you know, if that really is what resonates with who you really are, do it. 
um, you know, keep that in focus. If you're, you know, you want to leave a positive impact in the world, keep that in focus. Um, and try not to worry about like the day to day. I'm working on that because I, you know, I, I worry about, I'm the guy who's updating my dashboard and my business every five minutes. And I'm like, you know, we're 2% below where we were yesterday. Um, and my wife's like, what are you looking at? It fluctuates every day. I'm like, yeah, but we're 2% below where we were yesterday. <laughs> um, so, and then by the end of the day, it became, you know, the day's fine. But I said, I, you know, I'm trying to work on that aspect. But that's, I think, something that's really important. It helps you get past all the, the challenges of life. You're going to have them. Everybody's going to have some kind of challenge or trouble in their lifetime. I like, I like the fact that you said that it's when you stop climbing. I mean, it's true. And I think for a lot of us, we stop climbing because we think that we don't have anything. We have no support. There's nobody that believes in us or we don't believe in ourselves and we don't have an abundance of anything around us. But the issue, I mean, in, in reality, or the truth is that we don't create abundance, right? It's always present. What we're doing is we're creating limitations for ourselves. So the less limitations that we create, the higher we can climb, the farther we can keep climbing. And it really does come down to baby steps like you were talking about. I mean, I think of it like a chakra where you have your long-term life visions at the top. And then underneath that, if you go down, you know, you have your maybe 100-day vision. Right? I don't like to go much farther than 100 days because it gets too far away and it just becomes one of the long-term visions. So core values at the very top, 100-day visions, and then underneath that, I have those short-term visions, which would be uh, 30 days or something, like working towards to get to that 100-day mark. And then underneath that, it's just daily actions, man. Like, what are the two things that we can do today? And if all those things are in alignment with each other, then your core values can live. Like, does your daily action today align with that core value at the very top? And is it in alignment with your 100-day vision? And if that's a yes, keep climbing, right? Don't quit. Um I you know, you should of... create motivational products around that. It would be a hit. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> one day, one day, yeah. Maybe one day I'll get into creating motivational products. Exactly. We can only hope. Man, they'll, they'll be pretty sweet ass, I would think. <laughs> um, well, cool, man. We're, we're getting here on the hour, so I won't hold you too much longer, but I have a couple other things I want to talk to you about. Sure, go for it. I wanted to ask you this. I usually don't jot anything down pre-interview, but particularly for you, I, I think that you might have some kind of answer. What is something that you do that is really weird that you don't think most other people do? I don't know if I could give you a one thing specifically, but how would I, it's a combination of things, and it becomes kind of a one thing. We alluded to this before of kind of finding out who I was. And I remember there was a – in college was a weird time for me because I was in a fraternity. And so people was like, oh, he's the cool guy. But I also was one of the founders of the anime club, right? <laughs> and I remember being considered the geek of the fraternity. But one guy in the anime club, he's like, you're too cool to hang out with us. He even said that to me, right? What? So I was like, I'm too cool to be a geek and I'm too geeky to be cool, a cool person, right? So it was kind of this <laughs> weird thing that I was in. The one weird thing I'm good at now or I've, I've come to now is – I'm comfortable with being the kind of being in that weird space where I don't know when people meet me, I look, I can look serious or, you know, kind of normal and cool. But in my free time, I build robot mo Japanese robot models and I practice sword fighting, um, Japanese martial arts, but you know, sword fighting. <laughs> Did 
Dude, that's the awesome. weird thing I do is I do everything I'm interested in. And I take singing lessons and then I build, you know, seven figure businesses on the side. I mean, you know, it's kind of this weird com- combination of stuff. I think the weirdest thing, I guess if I had to define it now that I'm saying it, the weird thing is except that I've done is a hundred, accepting a hundred percent of who I am. I'm lucky my wife does as well and living that way. And I think I admit I did not do that for most of my life. And I think most people do not do that ever. And I think that's the weirdest thing I do. I accept all my quirks and I, I own them. I mean, you know, I'm like, I don't care if you think I don't, you know, if you find out I built geeky robot models and you don't think I'm cool. I'm like, well, the world's a big place. I'll find somebody else. You know, I mean, that's, I'm I'm not going to worry about that. I'm with you on that one, man. Getting to that point. I'm like, it it took me a long time. And at 28, when I started really figuring out authenticity being, look, you cannot, you cannot be the person that you need to be for the world or for anybody around you. You cannot inspire. You can't motivate. You can't create an influence the bigger enlightenment without loving yourself for exactly who you are. And I, I think that's the most important step. It's step one. Like how do you get in that headspace? How do you get to that point to where you love everything that you're doing and you go after it, no matter what anybody around you thinks, no matter what judgment is thrown your way? Like what would you do with your time if there was nobody judging or looking at you? Mm-hmm. What would you be doing? And that's what you got to do. I mean, I was when I was in the Philippines and – Another note, you have a chocolate factory in the Philippines, which is incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. (laughs) When I was out there, like the Mai Tai thing and the boxing, like I'd never done that before. I'm this giant, like, white dude. I was like a foot and a half taller than most of those guys in that gym, but I was interested in it. Just a correction, though, just not, don't want to interrupt you, but it's Muay Thai. Mai Mai Tai is a drink. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I got confused. I'm like, you were drinking alcohol while you did kickboxing. That's awesome. Muay Thai. Um, So I go in. And it was, I just was interested. I'm a curious person, right? I'm a curious, explorative human. And I, I like to do things that put me out of my comfort zone and weird stuff. And it was very weird because, you know, there, there's no telling what they're thinking, but it's the nicest people in the world, man. And I learned so much about coordination and I'd never sweat so bad in my life, like a detoxing my body. Cause there's, you know, it's a hundred degrees and there's no AC. I love it. I, you know, I did the same thing last night. I went to Kendo Pro- yesterday. I had a really rough day at work. Not nothing bad happened. It was just, I had like a ton of meetings and I spent the whole day answering emails. It was ridiculous, right? You've got a day where your head hurts at the end of it because you know, you feel like you're, you've worked hard, but you haven't gotten anything done. I went to my Kendo practice. And for those who don't know, it's, uh, it's Japanese fencing, but don't confuse it with European fencing. <laughs> Look up a YouTube video if you've never seen it. Um, yeah, samurai are a lot more hardcore than, you know, Three Musketeers. I felt great afterwards. I mean, I could barely lift my arms. Uh, it involves, you know, hitting each other with, like, bamboo sticks on the head and on the arms. And so I have bruises all over my body. I felt awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I do that two to three times a week. And not only from the fighting point, you know, the, because it's not practical. I'll be honest. I mean, unless I have a sword on me and you happen to not have a gun. You know, I'm not going to be that useful in self-defense, but it makes you feel great. And personally, I love the philosophy of a lot of the Japanese and martial arts. I mean, we meditate for five minutes at the beginning and end of every class. It's part of the classes. Every dojo you go to around the world, that's how you do it. Um, they have the philosophies of kind of looking at your opponent like you look at a mountain so you don't focus on any one thing. I think that's huge for business as well. Kind of, you know, keep the big picture. They have, there's only one. There's only one attack in kendo. There's no other form. You practice. There's a one. You swing the sword in a certain way. You go for different targets, but essentially you spend 40 or 50 years working on that one swing. 
That's all there is to kendo. Your footwork and all that, but there's one movement, and you spend a lifetime perfecting it. And I really find a, a lot of peace in that kind of um, philosophy. And packing up along is fun too, because you know the cardio's. <laughs> you, you, you did Muay Thai, right? I mean, two. You probably didn't do two hours, but if you had tried doing two hours of that, you probably they would have been scraping you off the floor with a spatula. The the boxing sessions alone, yeah. you know, they would get you. It's it's on a three minute clock in the boxing gym, so you you're on these. There's all these different stations. And then you hit the ring. The ring is by far the most brutal. But like, you don't understand for three minutes if you're doing. You got a pad in between your left arm so that you can't move your left arm. You have to hold it underneath your arm so that it stays in position. And then you're just punching with your right arm over and over on a bag, even by itself for three minutes. Like I've never felt that kind of muscle. <laughs> I, I just, it was, it, you feel really, really good. Like you've accomplished something that you normally wouldn't. And I, I really wish that there was places like their model out there man it's so brilliant just buy a package and you drop in whenever you want there's trainers all over the place you don't have one specific that you're seeing they all have different stations that you can drop in on and they work with you and they correct your form they're very serious about it like they want you to do it the right way they don't just you know uh just they're not texting and like watching tv or anything and I wish there was a place here, man. I, I go and like I look, and I, all I can find are like group classes, and I look at pictures, and it's just like forty people standing there, and one instructor like showing you how to throw a punch, and it sucks. Like that. Well, look at the other martial arts. I mean, I took me, I tried everything before I ran across kendo. It's not that one's better than the other, but there's certain ones that are better fit for whatever your personality, whatever you're looking for. I did kung fu for two years, aikido for a year, I did karate, taekwondo as a kid. Um, they were all well and good, but it just wasn't exactly what I was looking for. I strongly recommend you just go out there and try it. You know, I'll, I I love kendo. I mean, that's kind of when I yeah, when I mean, that. I happened. wish I could get those 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 Mexican prices that you get down there, Ray. No, well, kendo's if you. The thing about kendo is nobody does it professionally. Even in, and I know there's a dojo in Portland. How do you spell that? K e n d o. It means it's ken and do. It's ken is the sword in Japanese. Do is the way, so it's the way of the sword. Um, look it up for, I mean, look it up in Portland. Okay. If they charge, it's usually for the rental of the spot. Nobody's professional. There's no such thing outside of Japan as a professional kendo. There's no dojo there that's in it for the money. All the senseis I've ever had have day jobs, and they do this for the passion of the art. Nobody does kendo for, yeah, even here. They don't charge here because one of the people that I practice, one of the senseis is a college professor, which gives them free access to their the basketball court, which was you need a wood floor. Um, so it's entirely free. But these people who do it, all the senseis I've had have been doing it for 30, 40 years. Hmm. Many are doctors. The main sensei I had in the U.S., he was a, he was a, he was a surgeon, and he taught kendo at night. Um, the other one was a police officer, and the other one uh, was an artist at a museum. The, nobody does kendo. In the other martial art I found, unfortunately, that becomes their profession. You know, That's how they make money and make a living, by teaching kung fu, by teaching karate. Kendo, you will never experience that. In Boston, I've been to the, the dojo there. I believe the head there is a you know, teacher at a public school, if I remember correctly. He's been doing it for 30 years. Teaches in the day, comes and practices. You pay a small fee. That goes just the rent. Usually, you don't get a free facility, so your fee goes to pay the rent of whatever facility is being used. And if there's any money left at the end of the year, this is what we did in Cleveland, it pays for a nice Christmas dinner for everybody. You bring your wife and your families, <laughs> all the families, and we all went out and ate. We just used the money, and then you start the next year up again. Um, it's not for money, which is that what is I awesome. like. About kendo as well. So if you find a dojo there, it's much cheaper than most any other places you're going to find. The only thing is the gear is expensive. Um, so, but you you know you buy the gear. I've had the same arm you know sparring gear for like 
15, 16 years now. And I bought like the cheapest one back then, which is like 300 bucks. Um, and it's lasted me 15 years. So you can buy much more expensive ones, but there's no real reason for it. So if you're looking for something where essentially you get to hit people over the head with a stick and yell at the top of your lungs, <laughs> I'm overly simplifying it. Um, trust me, there's no better stress relief than that. And the adrenaline of knowing they can hit you over the head too and at the top, while yelling at the top of their lungs, so you better be paying attention. <laughs> It Man. doesn't hurt for those who know, you know, it's, I can just know. picture you and that. It sounds amazing. When, when uh, I was in, look, look up a video if you never have before, at least for me, the, I mean, it just, when people watch the kendo for the first time, they're like, that is crazy. Uh, you know, it's not that there's any, you know, kung fu flying moves, people jumping off the wall or anything, but just kind of the intensity of it's pretty hardcore. <laughs> I was recently in Northern California adventuring through the redwoods mm-hmm. and Stopped at a gas station. You know, they're all Native American reserves, which is a really sad situation by itself. And there was a guy who came into the gas station, and he was about – he had to been like four and a half feet, man. He looked Native American. He spoke Spanish. Uh, and he just needed help getting the 40 down from the top shelf. <laughs> and so we gave it to him. And, and I was like, man, that was, that was kind of interesting, just the exchange with him. But then when we got outside – dude had a full bow and arrow set like a legit one <laughs> threw it on his back and walked across the street into the woods <laughs> i was like with his wow. 40 with his 40 in his hand and i was like that was one of the most interesting things i've seen in a while <laughs> like, he knew who he was he you knew know who he was that's for sure <laughs> so yeah you never know man um so if you you obviously make big decisions you have to with business with life if you're faced with a decision that you're not sure what direction to go, whether it be meditation or any other tool set that you have or, or any anything that you do in general, how do you make that decision for yourself? I actually have a process for it. Um, I like to say, you know, a lot of people are successful entrepreneurs. They say, go with your gut. And I like to say, my gut's an idiot. So I definitely <laughs> never, ever go with my gut. What I do is if it's a big decision, I read all the information and then I sleep on it. And then I take it the next day. I never take longer than 24 hours. So that's kind of my, for my big decisions, that's how I do it. I will, I found that if I wait a week or two, I kind of think myself out of it or avoid taking it. Um, if I take it right in the moment, it's always the wrong one. So I found that the perfect mix for me is read everything, sleep on it, take the decision the next day. Is your, does your wife make decisions intuitively in her gut? She does. She's much more on the intuitive side and experience because her area of, of expertise is education. And I think that requires a lot more thinking on your feet, especially live classes when you have students in front of you. You know, you can't, if the kids are hitting each other in the classroom or something like that, you can't say, okay, keep hitting each other. Let me sleep on it and I'll be back tomorrow to figure out how to separate you guys. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's not an option you have. So I think she's much better at that than I am. But yeah, I've learned quickly in the first two years of our first business, my gut is really, really bad. Dumb. Right. Well, so he- what about with hesitation? Like you're, you take a little bit of time, but you said that you do it within 24 hours. You're not really hesitating. I mean, I think a lot of us, no. we do have great intuitive uh, powers to, to, to know like physically, like when you're in harm or something, like you just, you, you know, to get out of a certain place to do certain mm-hmm. things. But I think when we're actually working towards something that we can think about, a lot of us just hesitate until we decide not to do it and then nothing ever happens. How do you battle that gremlin of, trying to make you hesitate and trying to suppress you from doing it. Sure. I'll go, I'm going to go back to Kendo. Um, 
because I learned this in Kendo. I started Kendo way before I was an entrepreneur. And there's a philosophy in Kendo. The worst thing you can do is take a step back. That means your opponent intimidated you. And chances are you'll kind of lose your center and you'll get scored upon, uh, you know, get hit in that point. I kind of apply the same philosophy when, um, in business, never take a step back, always take a step forward. Even if the step forward causes you to lose, um, which is, again, using the Kendo analogy, just because I took a step forward and attack does not necessarily mean I'm going to win him. He might have been doing that on purpose, right, to try to get me to take that step forward, baiting me into an attack or something like that. But the correct answer is always to take a step forward. Um, so whenever I'm thinking of hesitating, that's it. You know, the cliche saying is if you never try, those who never try always fail and those who try fail occasionally. Or fail most of the time. But which one would you rather have? And it's the same thing about taking a step forward. Taking a step forward might cause you to fall down, but not taking a step forward will not change a thing. True that. True that, my man. That's what I'm fucking talking about, man. Do it. (laughs) If you could body slam a resistance gremlin that has taken over any human body, who would it be and why? Actually, I guess it wouldn't necessarily have to be a resistance gremlin if it was just a gremlin. Basically, if there was anybody in the world you could body slam, who would it be? In a good way or a bad way? Either way. <laughs> I don't know what a good way of body slamming is, but please do it. <laughs> well, that's what I say. Is that a cowboy technique I, of yours? My answer would be generic or the current <laughs> president of the United States. <laughs> I didn't know if, if that was I a, think a lot of people would probably give you that answer. At least 50% of the U.S. or 70% would give you that answer right I, now. I was looking at a petition earlier that Sierra club, you ever heard of Sierra club? Yeah, of course. Yeah. They're trying to get like 250,000 signatures to prevent the interior department from eliminating the Sequoia national forest from 330,000 acres to 90,000 acres. They're trying to chop down. That's all that we have left of those things. They're 3000 year old trees. I was about to say, what are they going to plant new ones to grow? I mean, come on. 3,000 years it takes to grow one of those trees, and they've already annihilated 95% of it, and I just cannot believe that that's actually happening. Like, that's a real thing. Mm. No, and that's, I mean, honestly, every day you, you know, not getting too far into politics, but every day I wake up and there's something else in politics um, where I'm like, I can't believe that's happening. Yeah, on both sides, for sure. On both sides. No, no, I mean, you know. You had you made me pick one person. If I could pick, I you know I body slam the entire you know Congress, Senate, and you know judi- you know all the branches of the government. Yeah, we'll just give them all wedgies. How about exactly, that? Exactly, exactly. Have you ever actually had a wedgie yourself? I am happy to say that no. Really? Damn, no. lucky. <laughs> Man, I get lots. Never of Never been hung up by a, a football on the football post or something like that. I I definitely I definitely got some nice wedgies and swirlies. Uh. Late bloomer myself, so that's what happens. <laughs> exactly. What, you, you, well, I was hey, I was a year younger than all my classmates. I was, I was the shortest person in my class growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So from a travel point of view, just to, type, to top this all out, um, how has world travel kind of affected your pursuit of life and your experience with the Peace Corps and the things that you've seen? I don't know any other way. Um, again, I – I was on my first plane when I was a few months old. You know, when people, some people can remember the first time they've been on a plane. I can't remember a time I've never been on a plane. Um, you know, by the time I was five, which is when we start remembering things, I think I'd probably been in 15 countries. Um, 
and I come from a family that's exactly the same. As I said, my my dad's dad grew up in Africa. My grandfather grew up in China. Um, Dude, he was so born crazy. there. You're a melting pot. Well, that's exactly it. I have cousins who are Nigerian. That's, you, that's why you look like such sex. You got everything in you. Oh, well, that's it. I blend in everywhere except Sweden. Even though my dad is blonde, blue-eyed Irish guy, so you, know. <laughs> you might. Yeah, you, you never know. You might get on Ancestry and find a find a brother who's got blonde hair and blue eyes, and end up. Oh no, that. there's plenty, and and embarrassingly, we've also find a lot of people with the black that are African descent because apparently, on the U.S. side, some of my Descent, you know, my ancestors owned slaves, apparently. So that's, uh, you know, we, we, there's a lot of people with my black name, my last name who, who have African descent. Um, not counting my cousins in Nigeria who actually are African. Uh, you know, like my, my uncle married somebody over there. Uh, so I guess it's like my whole being is what travel affects. I mean, it's one of the things that's interesting. You know, I sound American. I sound like white bread, New England. Um, but I don't feel really comfortable in the United States, mainly because in the U.S., since I sound American, everybody assumes I know all the cultural cues. Um, I don't, you know, because I never, I've actually, I'm, what, I'm 38, and I've lived 28 years outside of the U.S. and 10 years inside the U.S. I feel more comfortable living in countries where I'm not supposed to understand all the cultural cues. <laughs> so I like being an expat. And I, mean, I think, you know, it leaves more to, to learning too, right? And exploration. Oh yeah. And mystery. Oh yeah. I mean, but, but it's also a comfort, you know, if you make a fool of yourself in the U S and they, you're an American, they make fun of you. If you make a fool of yourself in like, another country, they're like, Oh, you know, he's not from here. Well, they you laugh know, and they help usually too. Hard. Yeah. They, they usually want to help too. They laugh and they exactly. Help. Exactly. They won't make fun of you. They won't look down on you. Um, but you also, it won't be quite as embarrassing to you because they're like, wait a minute. He's not from here. I mean, how he, we have no expectation of him knowing what that is. That's how it shaped me. So I feel much more comfortable almost anywhere in the world except where people think I'm supposed to fit in. So, so what are you most uncomfortable with about yourself? And how do you rise above that? Hmm. I'm a pessimist. So I always actually, when something bad happens, you know, I always, and I'm working on it. Meditation helps a lot with this. But I used to be really bad at the whole following something to its worst possible conclusion in my mind. You know, where, you know, one bad thing happens and maybe they'll sue me and then I'll go to jail. I'll never come out. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, you'll come out. You know, um, I used to be really bad at that, especially kind of at night. It's like me after I hit a bong. Exactly. And I think, you know, people, I think people do that. Meditation has helped me interrupt that. You know, one, I know from life that almost so far nothing has ever gone to the worst. I'm very imaginative. I'm very creative and imaginative. So nothing ever gets even close to, you know, what my imagination can come up with could happen. Um, and meditation is how kind of you interrupt it, right? Where you become more conscious that you're doing that and you stop it. And, you know, before it would, I would just let my mind go and it would just kind of keep going down those paths. It's not 100%. I sometimes, you know, if it's a really stressful or bad thing, 3 o'clock in the morning I wake up and, you know, I can't control my mind. During the day it's usually a lot easier. Correct. Are you on? Are you on Insight Timer? Do you use that? Yes. Yeah, yes. I love exactly. that. Every single day. Yeah. I think I see you on. I think we're friends. But um, yeah, I remember in Austin, I'd be out there by the river meditating. You'd be down there too. Mm-hmm. Holds me together as well, man. Everything that everything I do, it holds me together. And if I get pessimistic, it's how I refocus myself. If I'm overwhelmed, it's how I refocus myself. And it sounds cliche with how trendy the term mindfulness has become these days, but you know. Stoicism and it's being in tune with yourself has always been the way. 
And mm-hmm. if you practice that every single day, you're going to get stronger mentally. You're going to get stronger physically. Uh, you're going to be able to, to stay calm when these crazy-ass decisions hit you or situations in life that you're not expecting that leave you with your pants down and the poo all over your all over your shoes or your socks. Um, and yet, as, as you and I both know, it's it's going to happen. I mean, you know, yeah. it's not a matter of when or if it's, you know, it's going to happen. You are going to have be in those positions in your life, uh, no matter what you do to avoid them. So, you know, prepare for them. This too shall pass, my friend. Exactly. Exactly. That's actually, I think, one of the big, biggest lessons, right? No matter how bad things feel in the moment, we've all been through tough stuff that like a few years later, you know, that you think I'll never get through it. And then a few years later, you're like, okay, it's not that you've maybe forgotten about it, but you're Okay. Uh, always okay. There's that. Uh, did you listen to the recent? I think it was Nick Yaris. You know Nick Yaris? No, I, I'm not familiar with him, dude. If you ever feel bad, if anybody out there ever feels sorry or bad for themselves, go watch or listen to the Joe Rogan episode with Nick Yaris. He's the dude that was on death row for like 20 years, an innocent guy, mm-hmm. and the whole time he was being like tortured and beat. And his story is unbelievable. And like, I just listen to him talk and I'm like, okay, like, it's like the, and and he was so positive throughout the whole damn thing. Like just, I cannot, it's fascinating. So. Well, you actually listened to the interviewees, you know, the ones who survived the concentration camps, you know, um, and that usually is one of their patterns, right? They usually had a much more positive outlook somehow um, as those who didn't survive or those who, didn't live as long afterwards. I mean, you know, some of them are still alive today and they're like a hundred and you, I've seen interviews with them. They're like super happy and like, wow, you know, something in there made them resilient. Well, where can people get in touch with you, follow you? If, if somebody wants to, I don't know what your process is with teaching or if somebody out there is interested in teaching online language to students, is that something that's offered in the United States too, or is it, yeah. Yeah. So we have we have teachers in the US. Um if you want to apply for a job, just go to livelingua.com, L-I-V-E-L-I-N-G-U-A.com. Scroll to the bottom and then there's a job application form. Again, we're not a directory, so you don't fill it out and have a profile. If you fill out if you want to teach with us, you fill out our um, application form. It actually takes about ten to fifteen minutes. So we do a pretty extensive application. We want to get to know you more than just what you what's on your C V. Uh if you pass our basic qualification and we have an opening, one of our HR manager will contact you for an interview. Then you'll meet with our academic director, and then you come in for a three-month trial period to see if you work. If, if that all works out, then you're on, and you can continue with us. We do pay you for your trial period, so it's not like we expect you to work for free. But that, during that, we're watching how you do your class and the feedback from your students. Um, of course, if anybody wants to take classes, they just go to the page itself, um, livelingua.com, and they can just click on the – Start a free. I think you cut out. You still there? Hello. Trial class. Give you a free trial lesson to see if you're not. Oops. Uh, you cut you're out for there? a second, but it. I actually think yeah. it picked back up in time. My Google Drive just started syncing a bunch of shit, and it made it pause. <laughs> that, that would be. I just got a little internet connectivity <laughs> thing, uh, issue in there as well. Yeah. So just go to LiveLingua. Go on the About Us page, or just the Contact Us page. The Contact Us page will go to the. The, customer, the awesome customer support staff we have here. But if you're trying to contact me, just say, hey, pass this to Ray, and they'll pass it right along. Are you on social media anywhere, or are you just on LinkedIn? I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm on Facebook. Um, Facebook, okay. 
So I think I have a Twitter account somewhere, but I never use it. Uh, and where is I the, wish I was more uh, active. I just don't have time. I work 10 to 12 hours a day. Uh, what, so where is the what what sites the Camboy show on? Uh, yeah, that's uh, rayblakeney.com slash one million dollars. <laughs> one one million Bitcoin. Exactly. That, that's accept, the cost. Do you accept the cryptocurrency rule. on that site, Ray? Exactly. All cryptocurrencies accepted. <laughs> Believe it or not, I do own the domain clitcoins.com, and I'm hoping <laughs> that someday it'll be worth some money. It'll be a, a porn currency or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I'm dead serious about that too. All right, <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> Which is the closest thing I could get to to Bitcoin, really, but in a creative way. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on, dude. I've My pleasure. It's, it's been an awesome conversation. And um, I'm sure that you'll continue to rage. There's a place called space and it's got the magic. There's a place called space and it's got the balls. There's a place called space and it's got the passion. There's a place called space where we can smash the walls. There's a place called space where we'll face fuck conformity and the chatter of incompetence is slaughtered at birth. In this place called space, we'll build a factory of smiles that will assemble with our minds and sell to Earth. Tasted, boys and girls. I always get so excited when we talk about those webcams. My friend Steve, uh, he's got a webcam, and I'm a big fan of that thing and the little coins that I can tip with the click of a button, and it makes his little booty vibrate. He likes that little spice when I'm not around. I can do it from all over the world, and you know, as a location independent nomad. Being able to sexually please Steve from across the globe is a very fantastic thing for me. It makes me feel strong. It makes me feel macho. When maybe my whole life I was told that I wasn't. This episode was brought to you by the Sweet Ass Domination Deck. Go to RageCreate.com if you want to check that out. Go to Amazon.com and search for it if you want to get it a little bit faster if you've got Prime. Because we really need some people to help us with leaving reviews for it. So if you check one out, please leave us an Amazon review to get that kick started and we'll send you a little camboy coin in the mail if you're lucky. Ha 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 com forward slash gifts will take you to nothing because I don't know why I said that. com forward slash giveaway you can enter to win all sorts of goodies and gifts that we have. <laughs> HeathArmstrong.com forward slash podcast for all the show notes. And of course, if you want to help us leave a review, you can go to HeathArmstrong.com forward slash review. And it'll show you how. All of the proceeds go somewhere special. And if you want to leave a sweet little kinky message to be played on the show... For Heath or for me, Todd, go to HeathArmstrong.com forward slash voice. And we look forward to hearing you on the mic. Goodbye, boys and